All right, friends, thanks for coming tonight. This is the very first time we've ever recorded a Doable Discipleship episode in front of anybody except maybe like one or two interns. So thanks for joining us tonight. We want to welcome you who are watching on Saddleback.com slash Doable Live. Those of you who might be checking us out on Facebook Live, thanks for checking in. My name is Doug Jones. I'm Jason Wheeland. And Doable Discipleship, in case you don't know, is a Saddleback Church podcast designed to help you deepen your friendship with God, but we like to call it... The show that helps you leap tall buildings in a single bound. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. There we go. Talk about our speaker. Yes, yeah. We are very excited today because we have a very, very special guest with us. His name is Todd Miles. He is a professor at Western Seminary based in Portland, Oregon, and he's the author of the new book, Superheroes Can't Save You. And we read this book and we were like... We got to get this guy down here. We got to have a talk with him. It's going to be great. We're very excited that he's here with us tonight. Absolutely. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about who Jesus really is, debunking some myths about Jesus, some historical heresies. It's going to be a great, great conversation tonight. Now, uh, each of you who are here in person, you should have a card at your uh, chair there, and you can use this to write down a question. So while Todd is speaking tonight, take the time. If any question about Jesus comes to mind, Take, the, take a second just to jot that down, because we're going to ask that in the Q&A at the end. So Jason and I are going to be interviewing Todd, but we're going to interview him largely with your questions. If you're watching on Facebook Live, you can comment below, and we have a moderator who's going to write your questions down, so we can try to get to those questions in our Q&A time as well. So it should be a lot of fun. We're going to be interviewing him, but it's kind of be like you're interviewing him with your questions. So take the time to jot a question down, and then once Todd is done speaking, we're going to pass all those cards in, and we'll jump right into our conversation with Todd at the end. Sounds great. So, uh, without further ado, let's give a very warm welcome to Todd Miles. Yes, yes, yes. Good. It's, it is uh, good to be here with you. Uh, my name is Todd. Please call me Todd. And um, I, I want to start out just by telling you just a little bit about myself. And it's probably obvious from the title of the book that I wrote. But uh, when I was younger, I, I really enjoyed the, the comic book uh, genres. I, I read Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, and such. And, and because of that, because of that I, I had this fascination with phone booths. And, you know, you don't see phone booths anymore, <laughs> hardly at all, unless you watch Harry Potter. But uh, it, phone booths were, were everywhere uh, w when I was a child in the 70s and in the 80s. And I was fascinated with them because I, I always hoped that one day I would walk into a phone booth and I would see a, a suit of clothes lying there, which would be proof that Superman actually existed. Right. Because you all know Superman's M.O., right? Whenever there would be some sort of crime going on, uh, Clark Kent whew, Clark Kent would go to the nearest phone booth. Should we pause here? Or is that mine? Okay. There we go. We got it going. Okay. So Clark Kent would go to the nearest phone booth, and he would uh, shed his, his suit, and underneath would be his Superman, I don't know, what do you call it, costume, uniform, whatever, and, and then he would fly off to save the day. That's just how Superman worked. And I figured that if I saw a suit of clothes there, that would be proof that Superman existed. Okay. So let's pretend, let's just pretend that you are investigating a phone booth, and there actually is a suit of clothes there. Proof positive that Superman exists. Okay, so we're, we're doing just a little exercise here. Quiz. In that comic book world where Superman is actually real, was there a human being named Clark Kent? Was there a human being named Clark Kent? Did he actually exist? 
Okay. And the answer is what? Yes or no? Did Clark Kent exist? The human being Clark Kent, did he exist? Yes? Okay, I have some no's and I have some yeses. You have some yeses. Okay, yeah, it's kind of a trick question because I, because I asked, was there a human being named Clark Kent? And of course, the answer is no. Clark Kent was not a human being, was he? W where was Clark Kent from? He was from the planet... Krypton, yes, Krypton. Okay, so you know, you, you know the Superman lore. That the Superman was born Cal El on the planet Krypton, and then shortly before that planet exploded, he was jettisoned off to safety by his father Jor El. He crash lands on planet Earth in Kansas near the town of Smallville, where he's found by Jonathan and Martha Kent, and he, they give him the name Clark, and they raise him as a human being as a boy, and he grows into manhood. But he was never actually human, was he? He was Kryptonian. He was Kryptonian. There was no Clark Kent, not really. What was Clark Kent? It was just a disguise that Superman wore. Who was Clark Kent? Not a human. He was Superman in disguise. Okay, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with Jesus? Did you know that throughout the history of the church, especially early on, and then I think in a de facto way for many Christians today, we think of Jesus in the same way. We think Jesus, I know he was supposed to be human, but I don't think he was really human. Not like me. Not like me. He's probably God in disguise. Probably God in disguise. So we'll talk about just the details of that later on here and, and, and what like heretical idea about Jesus that, that actually was. Uh, but suffice to say that early on, it was a very significant heresy, bad idea about Jesus. And now today, I, I, I'm not sure that anybody would, would call themselves that kind of, you know, like I'm a Superman heretic or I'm a docetist, which is, we'll get into the details of that in a moment. But I think sometimes as we'll find out, we don't really know what to make of the humanity of Jesus. We don't really know what to do with that. So for example, for how many of you is this your picture of Jesus? Stronger than demons, more crafty than a Pharisee, able to clear out temples with a single whip. Look up on the Mount. It's, it's Moses. It's Elijah. It's, it's son of God, man. Yes, it's son of God, man. Strange visitor from up above who came to earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Jesus Christ, who can walk on water, multiply a few loaves and fishes into a meal for thousands, and who, disguised as Jesus of Nazareth, mild-mannered preacher from Galilee, fights a never-ending battle for truth, righteousness, and the kingdom of God. Now, you, you all recognize that, right? That's, that's kind of a spoof on, on the intro to the Superman uh, television show, right? And it's kind of funny, but did you know that it's, it's rank heresy? That that's not actually who Jesus is. And I think evangelicals especially have been prone to this. We're, we're very quick to defend the deity of Jesus, and rightly so, rightly so. But I wonder if in our zeal to rightfully defend the deity of Jesus, we just don't know what to make of his humanity. Who Jesus is, is vitally important. That, that's what we're going to be talking about all evening. 
who Jesus is. Uh, and I, what I want to con- convince you of is that unless Jesus is everything the Bible says that he is, he really cannot do the things, the, the things that are most important to us, those things that the Bible says that he does. He did, does, and will do in the future. You're all familiar with, with the gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is with his disciples at, at uh, Caesarea Philippi way up north, north of the Sea of Galilee. And they're, they're just kind of lounging around there, I guess. Um, but we're told in Matthew 16 that Jesus, in one of these times where he's just with his disciples, he asks them, who do people say that the son of man is? Who do people say that I am? Right. And of course, that's an easy question because you don't have to commit anything. All you have to do is kind of stick your finger in the air. Right. See which way the wind's blowing and then report back. And of course, the disciples have heard lots of talk about who Jesus is from everyone else. Who do the people say the son of man is? And so they respond. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. But then Jesus gets personal. What about you? He asks, who do you say that I am? Who? Now it's more uncomfortable, right? (laughs) It's way more uncomfortable for the disciples uh, because he's just gotten into their business. They have to make some sort of confession. Now, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, quick to respond, nails it. You are the Messiah, the Christ the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to congratulate him, not because he's the smartest uh, guy in the room, the sharpest tool in the box, nothing like that, because God has clearly revealed this to you. You nailed it, Peter. Well, why was that question so important? I, I, I would submit that's the most important question that can ever be asked. And the answer to it is of vital importance. And we're going to be talking about why that is tonight. The reason though is, is because only the, only the Jesus of the Bible can actually save us. Only the Jesus as he is presented in scripture can do all the things uh, that, that we yearn for, all the things that the scriptures say that he did. And now, it's, it's difficult because we're, we're going to dive into some deep stuff with regard to the person of Christ or Christology. And it's really hard sometimes to, to kind of wrap our mental arms around who Jesus is. Um, and there have been lots of ideas out there promoted uh, that fall short of the biblical presentation of who he is. And unbiblical views, unbiblical understandings of Jesus uh, they, they, they can't save us. The, the, the Jesus or the Jesus says, I should say of say the heretics or the deficient views. If, if that's who Jesus actually is, what we'll find is that kind of Jesus can't actually save us. It takes, takes everything Jesus is. And so, so that's why here, when it comes to the importance of what we'll be talking about tonight. And, and I think in your outline, in order for Jesus to do everything that the Bible says, he must be everything the Bible says that he is. That is, Jesus must be exactly who the Bible says that he is if he is going to save us. If he's going to be able to save us, he must be exactly who the Bible says. And not just save us, but do really any of the other things that the Bible says that he has done 
is doing, and will yet do. In the biblical presentation of Jesus, we find that the Bible affirms that Jesus is fully human and also fully divine. Fully human and fully divine. Now, that's hard. How, how can you be both at once? Now, what does this mean? If, if you were to take a checklist of everything that it takes to be human, everything that it takes to be human, then you would be able to check every single one of those boxes. So could Jesus. Every single thing it takes to be human, Jesus could check every box. Then if you had another checklist of divine attributes, like what does it take to essentially be God? God the Father could check every single one of those boxes. God the Spirit could check every single one of those boxes. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, could check every single box. So Jesus could check off every box on both of those checklists. Right? Now, that, that's easy to affirm. That's easy to affirm. Understanding that this is the case is pretty straightforward. But how this is the case, that is much more difficult. Much more difficult. And, you know, there's really nothing in nature that we can point to that says, oh, Jesus is kind of like this. This is how Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. There, there, there's no simple explanation or illustration. And, and over time, uh, we've, we've sharpened some of our language and, and, and we've, we've had a number of challenges that we've thought through and said, no, this isn't correct. And what, but but what's, what's evident, though, is that sometimes it's easier to say who Jesus is not than, than who he is. And we've had lots of practice in saying who he is not. And, and we'll look at a lot of examples of that tonight. The, the, the church, as, as, the, as it wrestled, I mean, shortly after, well, even before that, right? Uh, before Pentecost, when, when Jesus is walking around, people are like, who is this guy, right? Uh, we see that with the disciples over and over again. We'll look at some of this, the, the biblical stories of Jesus, and, and the apostles are just floored by this man. It's like, who, who is this guy? Every single time we think that we have kind of our, our finger on his pulse, he does something that just blows us out of the water. And, and, and that continues for quite some time. It still continues to this day, right? As I'm sure as you read the gospels, Jesus is, is like, who is this guy? Who, who, who is he? The, the term that we use in theology for the combination of two, the, two natures, right? Remember I said that Jesus could check every box of what it takes to be human. He's got a full human nature. And he can check every box for what it takes to be divine. He's got a full divine nature. He's fully and completely God. He's not, he's not just kind of God. He, he's not God-like. He is absolutely holy God, right? And th- that combination of those two natures in his one person, we call that the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. It, just, it basically comes from the Greek word hypostasis, right? Um, and... But how? So we have a name for it, hypostatic union. Two natures combined in this one person. But, they, but how can this be? It, it, it's hard to say exactly how the hypostatic union works. But what they did understand is they understood how the gospel works. They understood how the gospel works. And so a lot of times what the church would do when people would make proposals, oh, I think Jesus is like this. They would say, hmm, who Jesus is, that's tough but I know how he saved me. I know how he saved us. I know what he did for the church. And the Jesus that you just proposed could not have saved me. 
And so we use, the church used the gospel as a lens through which to judge all of these different proposals of how Jesus could actually be human and divine simultaneously. That is, if the proposed Jesus could not have saved us according to the Bible's teaching and presentation of the gospel, then that proposed Jesus, that model would be false or heretical. And that was how it worked. And so if at times you're reading along, you go, man, I'm just not quite sure I understand exactly how Jesus can be both these things at the same time. Uh, cling to the gospel, cling to the gospel. And, and, and that, that will give you the lens through which to judge, I think, a variety of aberrant views. Now, the church wrestled with this for quite some time. Uh, we, the, the, the creed that has guided the church uh, ever since it was written would be the Chalcedonian Creed. This was in 451 AD, Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD. Now you think 451, that was a long, that was a long time ago, but it was also 400 years after the time of Christ. That's how long the church wrestled with these things. And, um, it, it, it was formulated at an ecumenical council in Chalcedon. And what they said in this creed was that these two natures, human and divine, they coexist in Jesus without confusion, without change, without separation, and without division. Okay? Without confusion, without change, without separation, without division. And sometimes that's just called the Chalcedonian definition, those, those four things. Um, we will talk about how those work, but basically what it's saying is that these natures exist simultaneously, fully and completely. They're not blended. They're not, they're not uh, divided to where Jesus is kind of half human and half divine. He's not like a hybrid of the two. Uh, you can't separate them. You can't divide them out. He's just fully human and fully divine at the same time. And then we'll explain why that's so important, hopefully tonight, as we think through this some more. Okay, so, so that kind of clears the ground a little bit for, for what we'll be talking about for the next 35, 40 minutes or so, okay? And what I want to do is I want us to think about two, uh, two very bad ideas that are polar opposites. And I already looked at one. One would be that Jesus isn't really human. And the next one, of course, would be not really divine. But so let's go back to that first one and we'll call it the Superman heresy. Uh, the thing I found is that a lot of... <laughs> is that most of, if not all of the deficient views of Jesus throughout time, uh, they map brilliantly to a superhero. They're like embodied in the comic superheroes. It's uncanny. There's probably some reason for that. I don't think it's that, say, the people at Marvel and DC are just messing with us or they're, or they're evil or anything like that. As I said before, I love the comic book genres. I've loved the movies, the television shows, all that stuff. But it is amazing to me that if you look at all of the deficient views of Jesus through time that have arisen to such a level that we actually name them a heresy, you can explain all of them. They're, they're embodied in a comic superhero. Maybe we could think about it more positively. Nothing measures up to Jesus. He's better than anything we could even make up. Maybe we should think of it that way, right? But it is helpful, these illustrations. So I'm not comparing Jesus to the superheroes, right? There's, there's no comparison there. But I, I am going to compare the deficient views of Jesus to the superheroes. And I think it's, it, it's a helpful tool. So we already saw with Superman, Clark Kent, I call it the Superman 
uh, heresy. Who is Superman? Who's Clark Kent? Well, Clark Kent is a disguise, right? He's just a persona. He's like a costume. Superman just seemed to or appeared to be human. He just seemed or appeared to be human. And the bad idea about Jesus then is the same thing. Jesus just appeared or seemed to be human. He was just God in disguise. That was it, right? Not really human, not like you, not like me. Now, well, vitally important that he be like us, as we'll find out. Jesus can't, if, if Jesus was just God in disguise, then we are in some deep kimchi right now, right? Because he could not have actually saved us. He could not have saved us at all. Where did this bad idea come from? Well, if, if you're curious about it, it came largely from Gnosticism, or at least the, 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 the kind of incipient views that became Gnosticism, really a, a strong dualism, a philosophical dualism that, that the spiritual world was good, the material world was bad. Think, you know, Plato and, 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 and some of the, the Greek fathers would, were pos, positing these kinds of ideas. And, and if the spiritual world is good, then, then God can be good and God can do good things. And the material world is bad. Well, that means that God can't actually take on a body. He, he can't be human, not like you and me. And so the idea was Jesus just appeared to be human, he was, but he was God in disguise. And, you know, that, that one makes some sense. It's, it's easy for us to wrap our mind around, maybe not. Now, how did Jesus fake so many people out for so long? But if Jesus was just God in disguise, we think, okay, well, the, how can Jesus be human and divine at the same time? Answer, well, he wasn't. He was just divine. That was it, and only appeared to be human. And so what happens today for us? Well, yeah, you might be a Superman heretic. <laughs> you might be a Superman heretic if you think that Jesus was not fully human. Now, of course, if you've grown up in the church, you know that Jesus was human, right? You know that he was human. But do you really believe it? I think, so especially in the evangelical church of the 20th and 21st century, you know, in, in, our, in our battles with, in the early 1900s with those liberal Christians who were denying the deity of Jesus, it's just part of our DNA. We want to defend the deity of Jesus. Great. Don't stop doing that. Don't stop doing that. But again, sometimes in our zeal to defend the deity of Jesus, I think we don't know what to make of his humanity. And so, for, for example, um, when Jesus... Uh, was tempted. And we read in the scriptures that we have this great high priest who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so we're supposed to follow in Jesus's steps. That's what the apostle Peter told us to do, right? And, and one popular manifestation of doing what Jesus did would, you know, was that whole WWJD movement. Y'all remember that? It was, it was some time ago, but we're supposed to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? What would he do? Okay, solid advice, right? That's good counsel. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And, and then do what he did. But, but, but I remember for me, when, when I would read those passages or, you know, I'd, I'd encounter someone wearing, you know, like the WWJD bracelet or lunchbox or peachy folders or whatever the t-shirts that they had, it was like everywhere, right? I, I, I would think, hey man, that's really good. I'm gonna start doing that. But, but then I'd get into like a tough situation, uh, you know, like, moments after I woke up or something like that. And, 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 and I'm supposed to ask, what would Jesus do? And then I think, how am I supposed to do what Jesus did? He was God, right? I, I knew Jesus was God. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. Yeah, I know that he was born. I know he had human flesh, but, and, and yes, I would give lip service. Yeah, Jesus is divine. 
or, and Jesus is human. I have to say that, but I didn't know what to do with his humanity, right? So me, I would, I'd be fighting some temptation over and over again. It's like, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would just kind of laugh at Satan, right? And, and then quote some scripture at him. But of course he knew scripture because he inspired it, right? He wrote the whole thing. How hard was it for Jesus to actually memorize the Bible anyway? He was responsible for it. Um, or, you know, there's, I, I'd encounter someone that I'm supposed to be compassionate to. And I think, oh, wow, look at this person need. What, what would Jesus do? Oh, he'd go touch them and heal them. Or he'd like make food appear out of nowhere. That's what, I can't do any of those things, Right? And so when, when I would ask, what would Jesus do? Or you just, again, if, if that's like two eighties, you're just reading the Bible and it says, follow in his steps. How am I supposed to do these things? Well, I think at that time, at that moment, I had basically functionally become a docetist or a Superman heretic. That's the actual name of the heresy, docetism. comes from the Greek word dekeo, to seem or to appear. So if you were a docetist, you, you believe that Jesus just seemed or appeared to be human. Right? And I think functionally, sometimes Christians, especially, especially Christians today, can fall into that because we don't know what to do with his humanity. But the Bible presents a very human Jesus, doesn't it? it the Bible doesn't give us that option of thinking Jesus wasn't really human. Um, Jesus had a full human ancestry. And to make that point, they give us two genealogies of Jesus, right? He, he had a human birth and it was a pretty ordinary birth, all things given. Now you think, oh, it's Christmas time. That was anything but ordinary. But, you know, I'm sure there was lots of blood and tears and crying and all the things that attend giving birth, right? Now his conception was extraordinary. Okay. I'll grant you that, but not his birth. He gestated in the womb for nine months, just like every human, and then was born to a woman. And I bet Jesus looked an awful lot like his mom, right? Because he was her son. Jesus had a, a human childhood, a very human childhood. So ordinary was Jesus's childhood that we're not told anything about it. You know, like, 90% of Jesus's life, if, if Jesus begins his public ministry at about age 30, 33, right in that time period, which is where most of us think that that's when it started, that means 90% of his life is not even mentioned. It's like the gospel writers just want to tell you, nothing to see here, folks. Just move along, move along. Why? Because it's ordinary. You know, like if you were like to take, a snap, take snapshots of Jesus' life or like look at his journal, I, I think it would just be really boring, right? Got up. Did the chores, obeyed my mom and dad, you know, ate meals, you know, learned things, went to bed, wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. That's just what Jesus did. There's nothing in his boyhood as recorded in the gospels other than, I mean, there, there's a couple stories, right? From his, from his birth. And then there's one when he's about 12 years old or so, uh, where he's in the temple, which is a pretty remarkable story. If you want to, I don't know if you have a Bible with you, but if you want to turn to Luke chapter two. This, this story always cracks me up, but it does show you how significant the humanity of Jesus is. In, in Luke chapter two, we're told um, every year his parents travel to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So what, right off that, we're told something about Jesus. His parents were pious and they did ordinary Jewish things year after year after year. Now, apparently raising the son of God did not exempt you from 
Jewish stuff, right? So that's, that's what they did. When he was 12 years old, Jesus, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So this is what they do every year. They're, again, it's very ordinary. It's like a, a, a day in the life of a Jewish boy in, in the first century. After those days of the festival were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Okay, so the, common, so the, the, the festivals were pilgrim feasts, and you would go in caravan, probably because it's safer uh, just to be traveling with a bunch of people. So it'd be like a big family or civic affair, everyone just going down to the festival. And, and it was probably just way more fun too, right? You can just imagine this big trip down to this like big party in Jerusalem, which is what these festivals were. It's great. So they assume he's in the traveling party. They go about a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Like, oh, hey, where's Jesus? I thought he was with, you know, Solomon or, or whoever, right? Uh, when they did not find him, and what the Bible doesn't tell us, they panicked, right? Uh, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. Okay, that's, that's what any parents would do, right? You're probably just freaked out. Imagine Mary and Joseph. They haven't just lost their kid. They've lost the son of God, right? <laughs> they've lost him. <laughs> what, uh, what are they going to do? So they search for him, we're told, for three days. They search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. So they love Jesus' questions. He's asking them questions. And then they'll fire some questions back at him. They love his answers. They love his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. That's Greek for like really, really, really angry and frustrated. No, it, it just means they're astonished, right? They're astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That's just remarkable restraint on Mary's part. Because right, she probably wants to jump across, wring his neck, right? Um, but he's there with all the temple leaders. See, that would be bad parenting, right? So, and, and Jesus, he responds very strangely, very strangely. Why were you searching for me? Because uh, I'm your mom and dad, right? <laughs> and and you're, my, you're our responsibility. Anyway, he asked him, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? So it's almost like Jesus is saying, you know, this isn't really a me thing. It's more a you thing, right? <laughs> you know, you, you should have known. You should have known where I'd be. And, and maybe they should have. And maybe at least if you're going to search through Jerusalem, go to the temple first. I, I don't know what he's thinking. Um, but what's, so, so there's, I mean, he's human, but he's not merely human, right? There's more going on here. There's, there's some promise that's just kind of, um, shining through here. This is no ordinary child, but he's very human. We're told uh, they didn't understand what he said to them. <laughs> you know, so they're like, they look at him and they're like, just get in the car. And, and, and then they take him back to, to Nazareth, right? He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them, was obedient to them. Jesus, the son of God, a growing boy, he's obedient to his mom and dad. His mother kept all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and with people. All right. So what does the Bible say? Well, Jesus was a human. Jesus was human. He grew up like a normal boy. Now he's, he's, there's some, you know, there, there's a couple stories where you go, oh, he's not, he's not totally ordinary, but he's not less than human. 
He might be more, but he's not less. Jesus had normal human experiences. If you, you work through the scriptures, you'll find Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus got tired. And then the most human of all things is that Jesus died. He died. Uh, do you know God can't die? God has like life within himself. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know you can do some things God can't? You can do a number of things God can't do. You know, you can lie. <laughs> We're told very specifically, God, God can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. So I don't know if you're feeling like silly, you can like boast before God, you can do something he can't. Uh, I, I can lie. You can't. Um, that, that's not really a strength though. That's seen as a weakness in, in the eyes of God, um, but also die. God had to become a human in order to die. He had to become human like you and me. So, so Jesus died. And uh, so th- this is, this is how Jesus is presented in the scriptures. Now, why would this be important? Well, if Jesus is not human, then he can't save us. If Jesus isn't human, then he cannot save us. Why is that? Well, if, if, if you have heard the gospel before, you know that humanity has sinned. You yourself have sinned. And the penalty for sin is death. And uh, this is what God has prescribed in, in Genesis. And that is what we have seen over and over and over again. Ever since Eden, humans die. It's like, y'all Lord of the Rings fans at all? Remember, in the, remember when the, the fellowship is going through Moria and, and there's the drums of the orcs and, and the, the evil things in Moria and, and they pound out doom, 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 doom. It's, it's like, that's the way death is through the Bible. It just, it's, it's like the drums of Moria beating out doom, doom. And it is relentless and it is un- unavoidable, right? And it, you, you see that even in the, in the genealogies over and over again. So-and-so begets so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. And he died. And he died. And he died. Doom. 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 It's just relentless. It's terrifying as you read through the genealogies. Unless it's just a me thing. But as I, as I read, it's like it's, it's, it's depressing, right? So sin and death, it's our fault, right? We, it, the, the scriptures are very clear. We can't blame God for sin. And we can't blame God for our death. Sin is a human problem. And the penalty is paid by humans. So sin is a human problem and it requires a human solution. It requires a human solution. Now, what we'll find is that another truth that we do find in scripture is that only God can save. Only God can save. Sin is a human problem, requires a human solution, but only God can save. Okay, so, so now, how, how are these things going to go together? Well, that's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? God becomes a man. God the Son becomes a man in Jesus Christ. And so when he dies, he can taste death for us. I mean, that's very important in the, all the gospel presentations. Jesus died for us. He died in our place. He takes the, the wrath of God, the punishment of God against sin. He takes that for us, right? How could he do that if he was not human? Now we might think, oh, weren't there a whole bunch of animal sacrifices, right? Like year after year on the pilgrim feast of like day of atonement, you would go down, you take the family pet with you to Jerusalem and you would sacrifice it right? And which was, it's kind of a horrifying thought to think of it that way, but maybe that's the best way because you're thinking you're, you're taking something precious and you're offering it 
and, and the priest would put his hand on the, on the lamb, probably signifying a, that there's like almost like a transfer of sin or this, this lamb is now identifying with us as, as we identify with it. And then that lamb is killed year after year after year, all these sacrifices to remind the Israelites of how horrible sin was. But maybe, you know, on some of those trips as they're walking down, you know, it's like, Hey dad, what are we doing? And, and we're going, it's a it's day of atonement. We're taking, you know, we're taking a lamb. Oh, what, why, why are we doing that again? Oh, because uh, this lamb's going to die in our place, right? It's, it's going to take uh, our sin. It's going to, it's going to die for us. And, and at some point someone had to ask if they were thinking, uh, how can a lamb substitute for me or a bull or a goat or anything like that, right? How can they actually substitute for human sin? And of course the answer is they can't, they can't, they never took away sin, not entirely, right? Which is Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse four tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, right? Only a human can die for human sin. And so if Jesus isn't fully and completely and authentically human, then, then he can't, he can't save us. He, he cannot die for us. He can't substitute for us. So Jesus had to be human so he could die or pay the penalty for sin. And, uh, and then so much more as we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll close up uh, later, but we'll talk about Jesus as high priest. If Jesus isn't human, then how, how can he be a, a priest for us? How how can he stand in the gap? How can he act as our advocate before God? At least in the, the robust way that the Bible describes the, the, the ministry of Jesus, even now on our behalf. Okay. Superman heresy. God or Jesus Christ was not really human. He was just God in disguise or docetism. But there's another one. There's another one. The second one that we'll talk about here is related more to Batman. And this is the opposite one. And so I said earlier that the first heresy, Jesus is not fully human is maybe something that Christians might in a de facto way lapse into, but the Batman heresy we'll find out that's the one that most unbelievers have to say about Jesus. Okay. So let's think about who Batman is, right? No, no trick questions on this one. No quiz, nothing like that. Um, but I'll say this, I, I, growing up, I loved Batman comic books. I, I still do. He's, he is one of my favorite comic book heroes. Um, but when you analyze it and think about it, what superpowers does Batman have? Did, did any of you watch the Justice League movie? And Flash asks Batman, oh, now what, 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 super, what superpowers do you have? And what does he say in response? Do you remember? I'm rich right? That's his superpower. That's his superpower, right? Um, Batman has no superpowers. He doesn't really. He does not have the speed of flash. He can't breathe underwater like Aquaman or talk to fish or anything like that. He's not, I mean, he's strong because he's lifted weights and maybe juiced up a little bit. I, I, I don't know. Um, but he doesn't have Superman strength. I mean, that whole idea of Batman versus Superman, that was kind of a joke, right? I mean, compare Batman and Superman for a moment. Superman can fly faster than a speeding bullet. Batman has to run to the Batmobile and he has to fasten his seatbelt before he gets going, right? That, that's not fair. Um, Superman has x-ray vision. Batman has a belt and a bat rope, 
right? Now, holy unfair fights, Batman, right? This is not, this is not right. Uh, the attributes of Superman are lauded in his theme song, right? That we just, we just talked about earlier. Um, what do we sing about Batman? Na, 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 Batman. I mean, that's it. That's it. That it's, it's not, it's not really fair. So, so it, Batman has no superpowers. He's just a remarkable human being. Now, he is the most remarkable human being in all of the comic superheroes, right? There's no one who's like Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is, is Batman's alter ego. Bruce Wayne, though, has no superpowers. Now, he's filthy rich. He's a, he has a science and technology guy working for him that gives him all sorts of super cool gizmos. Uh, he was trained by ninjas. Right? But all of those are, are human things, are human things. He's a remarkable human. That's all. And, of course, another really deficient view of Jesus is that he was probably the most remarkable human ever, but still just a man, only a man and merely a man. You know, if, if, if you talk to people uh, now, it's, it's, it's easy to bash and criticize the church. It is easy to do that. Um, but, but trash talking Jesus is still kind of bad form. Most people don't say bad things about Jesus, right? And so most people have a high view of Jesus. They'll say, yeah, Jesus, oh, he was awesome. Right? He was the most remarkable human being that ever lived, but that's all. And, and of course, this bad idea comes from, from naturalism, the idea that the physical world is all that there is. Physical world's all there is. And everything can be explained by natural forces. And so you might be a Batman heretic if you think that Jesus was just a remarkable man. Just a remarkable man. That is, Jesus was not divine. He was not divine. And now, if, if you are a confessing Christian, of course, you cannot say that. <laughs> you can't say Jesus was just a human. He was not the son of God. He wasn't divine. You, you can't actually say that. Uh, but I think sometimes it's easy for us to minimize the deity of Jesus. And in a de facto way, um, we're basically saying, yeah, I think Jesus was just a, just a human, a really remarkable human. I, I think the times where that happens the most is when we are maybe talking with our friends, our unbelieving friends about who Jesus is or who he was. And it's so nice to have common ground with our unbelieving friends, especially about the things that are most important to us. Because, you know, you've had the, as, as you've talked maybe with with people about who Jesus is and you start to talk about how, Oh yeah, Jesus was the son of God. And, and they're like, man, I was with you until you went there. Uh, Jesus was really remarkable. He was a great preacher. He was very compassionate. He was incredibly patient, but you lost me at son of God. You just went crazy on me. And, and it's really easy. I think for us to just kind of stay at the common ground level and you will leave common ground the moment you start talking about the deity of Jesus. But I would encourage you, we'll circle back to this, don't stay at common ground level. Because a just merely human Jesus, it, it might win you approval with your friends, but it will not do your friends any good at all, if that's all that you say that Jesus is. So, what does the Bible actually say about the deity of Jesus? Well, it's very, very clear. Jesus and others testify that he was divine, right? Now, that's the easiest thing, right? Talk is cheap, 
talk is cheap. But the easiest thing would be to just say, oh yeah, Jesus is divine. Jesus is the son of God. Uh, Jesus made claims to be divine. And Jesus' friends made claims that Jesus was divine. There's a list of verses there on the handout. John 1, 1 through 4 is a great place for that. Um, but Je- So uh, there's, there's times where Jesus identifies himself with God. There's times where then he does things that only God can do. These are maybe better arguments, better arguments, better than just merely saying that Jesus is God. Um, which, but the biblical authors do that. And I think it's important that the biblical authors testify that Jesus was God. It would be weird for us to say more about Jesus than the Bible does, especially about his deity. Um, but, but, but I know that the fact that some of Jesus' friends said that Jesus is God isn't proof positive, but it's, it's necessary. I think it's necessary that they say that. Uh, maybe more compelling to people are the different things that only God can do that the Bible says that Jesus did. Things like creation. Uh, we find in the New Testament that the Son of God was active in creation. Um, I, I, I think a strong argument for the deity of Jesus is when he forgave sin. And he did that without blushing. Uh, you can read about that in Mark chapter 2. We don't have time to delve into that story, but it's, it, it is a, a fascinating story because Jesus' critics are appalled that Jesus would forgive sin. Because, and that they even say, who can forgive sin but God alone, right? They understood that unless you have wronged someone, you cannot forgive them. And the only being who is wronged by everyone, every time someone does anything wrong, is God himself, right? And yet Jesus, this, this guy is lowered down before him. Here I am talking about when I said we didn't have time, but I won't, I won't read. Uh, Jesus, the first thing he says to this paralytic in Mark chapter 2 is, your, your sins are forgiven. And there's this gasp because everyone goes, how can you do that? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus knows that's what they're thinking. And so he says, okay, I get it. Talk is cheap. Anyone can just say things about being God, like I forgive your sins, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk, but to show you that the son of man, that was Jesus's name for himself, that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. And this paralyzed man whom everyone in the neighborhood knew was paralyzed and had been for a long, long, long time. He gets up and walks out of the room which was a trick because it was a standing room only sort of place, right? So he's, you know, so the, you know, he, he's got a bob and we even dodge people just to get out the door, but he does it. He does it. And everyone is stunned at what just took place. Okay. So Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. Now I suppose it's possible that Jesus, uh, that God could have done a miracle through Jesus, right? Because remember uh, the doing of miracles is no proof of deity, right? The doing of miracles is no proof of deity because lots of people did miracles. God does miracles through a number of people in the scriptures, and that doesn't mean that they're divine. But Jesus got, just got done claiming to be divine, and then God does a miracle through him. Now, God doesn't often do miracles through people, but how often does he do miracles through people who are blasphemous crackpots who are claiming to be God? I, I would submit to you, never, right? Never. He does not do that. And so for Jesus to claim to be divine, to claim to forgive sins, and then back it up by God doing a miracle through him, I think it lends some credibility to his claim that he has the authority to forgive sin. Okay? So, and, and then for me, I think another really strong argument for the deity of Jesus is that Jesus accepted worship without blushing. 
I, we already established Jewish, Jesus was a good Jewish boy, right? He, and he grew up into, I take it, a good Jewish man. The Jewish people were strident monotheists. They understood who you, who you were to worship and who you were not supposed to worship. Right? You worship God alone. And I mean, even the angels understand this. Well, especially the angels. I shouldn't say even. Especially the angels understand this. Right? Anytime an angel appears, they're like so awesome that people just fall, they, they fall down and, and they want to worship the angels because it feels like you're in the presence of God. And like the first words out of an angel's mouth every single time, it's, it's one of two things. What? What do angels say? Do not fear. Do not be afraid or get up. Right? Get, get up or don't be afraid. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because they know who's to be worshiped and who is not. And yet people would fall down to worship Jesus and Jesus would be like, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. He accepted worship without blushing. This is a good Jewish man, an Orthodox Jewish man, a strident monotheist, and yet he accepted worship. And, and one of the best examples of that is in, math, or is in Revelation 4 and 5, where the, basically the, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, strides into the throne room of God and all of these beings who have been created to worship God. I mean, if there's anyone who has a theology of worship down, you would expect it to be these angels, these created beings who they're created just to worship. And so like, they're really good at it, right? They're really good at it. And, 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 and the lamb of God, the lion of Judah simultaneously comes into the throne room of God. And it's like all these beings, it's as it were, they, it's like they almost turn and fall down and worship the Lion of Judah, who is the Christ, Jesus. And they're not incinerated immediately, right? You don't read that. It's like, and fire from the throne went out for the blasphemy or whatever, right? Now, God is super patient. He's super patient with us. And, and he endures a lot of blasphemous stuff and false worship. But probably not in his throne room, right? Probably not there. And yet in his presence, in the presence of God, the Father, seated on the throne, these beings created to worship, it's almost as though they turn and fall down before Christ. I think that's the strongest argument in the Bible for the deity of Jesus. And there's many other stories that we could tell of this, but um, why? So, uh, so what kind of arguments does the Bible use? Testimony, people, Jesus claiming to be divine, uh, Jesus's friends claiming that he was divine and then Jesus doing things that only God can do doing things only God can do. And, and remember, I'm, I'm not including just miracles in there. It's, it's things like forgive sin creation and then accepting worship. Those are things only proper to God. Now, why is this important? Well, as I said before, sin is a human problem that requires a human solution Yet, what we find out in the Bible is that if there's any people absolutely incapable of saving themselves, it's humans. So what are we going to do? It, it, it becomes an axiom in the scriptures that only God saves, that salvation is of the Lord, right? Salvation is of the Lord. So God becomes a human, but he doesn't slough off humanity. The son of God does not cease being divine. This is important too. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, the blood of Jesus is precious. I would submit to you because it's, it's, it's absolutely human blood, but it is the blood of Emmanuel, God with us. It is precious. We're told in first Peter chapter one. And, and what we find out that because Jesus 
is not just human, but is human and divine, that when Jesus goes to the cross, he is doing way more than we could have ever imagined. There is, the Lord's salvation is greater than you and me. Look at, if, if you want to turn to Colossians chapter one, this is, a lot of people think this is from an early hymn that the church sang, just confessing who Jesus was. And Paul, like in a Broadway musical, I guess he lapses into song here in the middle of his letter. And he says this, that he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible son, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. So, so here's our, our arguments for the deity of Christ. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Like everything it takes to be God dwelling in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and died, he was making possible the salvation of you and me. And so much more. The cosmos can be recreated. The curse can be lifted. Powers and principalities that have been for so long rebelling against God have now been judged. Everything is as it's supposed to be, at least by legal verdict. And when Jesus returns, everything will be put the way it's supposed to be. Why does he have the authority to do that? How can God forgive? How can God recreate? Because Jesus Christ went to the cross, fully human, fully divine. The Lord's salvation is greater than just you and me, greater than you and me. It's not less than that, thankfully, but it's so much more than that. And then just what's the logic of the gospel that we're told in Romans three, that, that Jesus, that what Jesus has won for us is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. And we're told in Romans three verse 25, that God presented him, that is Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. It's almost as if, and you'll have to work with me on this. There's like this tribunal that is judging God and they see God forgiving sin. And they're saying, you can't just forgive sin. You can't just forgive. You're not righteous. You're just pretending that sin doesn't matter. And maybe someone would say, oh, there's blood, there's bulls and goats that are being sacrificed. That's the atonement. That's why God can forgive. And of course this, this tribunal that's judging God would say, no, blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. And God would say, I was not forgiving sin on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats. I was forgiving sin on what my son would do, what I would do when Jesus Christ goes to the cross. And so the cross, the death of Christ and his resurrection is a demonstration of the righteousness of God, that God wasn't just passing over former sins but he was forgiving people because there was something real that would happen. And for us, something real that has happened. You can be forgiven. 
because Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, died for you, died for you. That's the logic of the gospel right there. And that's why it's so important. I, I, I want to end with this and then we can get into more stuff in the Q and a time, but there's this great passage in the book of Job. It's one of my favorites. Um, and if you know the story of Job, you know that Job is, he's said to be a righteous person and yet he's going through all these horrible times. Now we know why he's going through horrible times. You know, God and Satan have almost kind of made this bet, right? Uh, that Job's going to be righteous. Job's going to be righteous because, uh, you know, God's, God's counting on him. Um, and Satan's saying, no, the only reason that he's, he's a good guy is because you've been blessing him. Uh, but let me curse him. Let me bring horror into his life. And he'll be, and he'll be um, condemning you and mocking you and questioning you, right? Cursing you. And, and so Job, though, he stands firm, right? But he doesn't know what's going on. He, he wants the opportunity to make his case before God. He wants that case. He wants that opportunity. And, and yet he knows every now and then it's like, he says, if only I could speak to God, if only I could, if, if, if only I could do this. But, but then he's like backs away and he goes, wait, wait, wait a second. I can't actually talk to God, <laughs> which is what turns out. Cause then when God does talk to him, it's like, whoa, I can't say anything to you. But he reflects this in Job chapter nine, verse 32 and 33. After saying, I need to plead my case before God. Look what he says in verse 32. God is not a man like me that I can answer him that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. What Job needed at that moment was someone who could stand in between him and God, someone who could put his hand on God and someone who could put his hand on him. All right. Someone who knew what it was like to be God because he is God. Someone who knows what it's like to be you because he is one of us. And for Job, that person wasn't there. But Christian, that person is there for you. It's Jesus Christ, fully human. He knows what it's like to be you because he is human, just like you. He can put his hand on you. And as our mediator, as it were, he could put his hand on God because he is fully divine. That's not so good. It can't be true. That's so good. It has to be true. How could we make anything like that up? Well, thanks for checking out this first part of our two-part series with Todd Miles called Superheroes Can't Save You, examining some of the historical heresies or bad ideas about Jesus, the things that people have come to think about him that just aren't true. We hope you found this first part of the talk uh, informative and helpful, educational for you. Uh, Don't miss part two, which is coming out next Tuesday. We're going to be uh, spending some time going through a Q&A, an audience Q&A with Todd Miles. So make sure you come back for that next week. Until then, we love you and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of video content. And if you're already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app, so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com doable to check out all our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, 
You can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts. Send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question just might inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Doug Jones, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.